Infirmary Media. In decades, the Matrix and Blade versus Bloodsport and Renegade. Strap on that cap, bust out the power glove. Come fight for what you love. Who culture popping pins, dropping hand grenades? Van Halen locked in Mortal Kombat with David Gray. Found out ballet and sick. I am made of GNR. Come fight for what you love. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York Studios, it's the adult only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy. Because it's your history, we just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. I am Mark James, and this week, I will be representing 1979 in this special monster-themed duel. Let's meet this week's other duelers and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, with a monster five-game win streak, say hello to Man Crush. That's right. Let's see if I can make it six. I don't know if I've ever done that before. Andre, there's a lot of pressure on you. I have Monsters of 1985. Also on the panel this week, he's a Dueling Decades fan and a Monster Squad mega fan. Please welcome Trevor Gumble. What's up, guys? Today I am repping Monsters for the year 1998. And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. You'll remember this week's celebrity guest judge for his portrayal of Sean in the Monster Squad. Now you can see his new film, Wolfman's Got Nards, all about the power of cult cinema. All rise and welcome Judge Andre Gower. That was a smattering of applause. Be seated, be seated, be seated. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie after all five rounds, we will go to a final wild card round. All right, duelers, load up on guns, bring your friends. It's fun to play more. Dueling decades. All right, let's go right down to Andre Gower for the coin toss to see who goes first in this game. Trevor, you call it. Uh, I will go with heads. It is tails. Trevor, you're out. <laughs> what exactly did uh, you... I just wanted him to tell everybody. What did you flip there? Because that's a first. Oh, I thought this was our secret. Uh, this is my uh, this is my bite-sized uh, soft black licorice uh, that I have uh, taken a little nibble out of one side, which I declared as heads, but it came up as tails. Not quite as good as Rhonda Shear's titty that she flipped, but it's that's second best. Uh, maybe third after the uh, the slice of pizza that somebody flipped. But that's a good one. Still not sure which one would taste the best. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Man Crush, you won the coin flip, and you get to select our first category. Where are we going? All right, let's start with music. We don't normally start with music. That's a good place to start. Let's go to June 1st of 1985 and this was the hardest of the bunch to find for this episode i couldn't find any like classic monster songs like 
monster mash or thriller. So I had to go really deep. And this selection right here, this is from a Hall of Fame musician, and this is his first solo album and probably the furthest person I'd ever consider to pick for a monster song. Hint, this is the third time this year that I've selected this guy, although the last two were from his former group, whom basically disbanded in 1984. They did get back together briefly in 1986, and they were ran, remain apart until reuniting in 2007, which is a wild story all in itself, considering this dude left this band at the pinnacle of their success. Mark might know where I'm going. But let's see. Anywho, this is this guy's first solo effort, and it did pretty well. He sold roughly 10 million copies worldwide, went three times platinum in the U.S., had five singles, reached number two on the Billboard 200, and was nominated for two Grammys. And as the story goes, police guitarist Andy Summers gave Sting the book Interview with a Vampire by Anne Rice, of course, and that inspired Sting to write the song Moon Over Bourbon Street. And a few months back, I discussed how uh, Sting went and he wrote the, uh, I forgot which song it was, but he sat at Ian Fleming's desk in Jamaica. And then this time around, this dude pens this song while hanging out down in New Orleans. Not a bad life. Uh, but in Sting's own words, he was a big fan of Lewis's character in the book. So Sting goes on to say this, the idea of being a vampire and being a predator but regretting it all the time, knowing that there was something morally wrong with the lust and hunger. And I love the struggle that is going on in the character's head. And there was kind of a movement of people who thought that the Lestat character, uh, when he became a rock star, was, which happened later on in the books, was because of Sting. And he said he wasn't because he was not the character that he was interested in at all. It was Lewis. And this is the most unlikely album to be found on this episode. This is Sting. I dream of Blue Turtles and his song Moon Over Bourbon Street about a suffering vampire torn between killing the innocent or dying himself. So that's what I got for my first pick. Wow. All right, let's go over to Trevor Gumble. What do you have for the music round? Well, for my pick for 1988, this album was released on May 19th, 1998, containing three hit signals. It is a soundtrack containing the signals singles come with me by puff daddy and jimmy page heroes by the wallflowers and deeper underground by jamiroquai this album went two times went platinum in the u.s and peaked at number two on the billboard 200 my pick for the 1988 music round is godzilla soundtrack oh nice it's a solid one yeah definitely it's got the isn't uh, raging against the machine on that too yes it is and there is a lyric um actually kind of criticizing the film godzilla which it should. Yeah. So <laughs> that's kind of what they do. You know, if you're going to put Rage on Machine against the machine on your soundtrack, you better be damn sure your film's going to be on the up and up politically or something like that, or else they'll call you out on it. I was in New York City when that movie was just coming out. And there were billboards all over New York City for it. It was like a week or two before this happened. <laughs> this homeless guy came up to us wearing a plastic bag and we gave him money. And he's like, if you give me two bucks, I'll show you the real Godzilla. And we we're like, all right. We gave him the two bucks and he just starts going rah, rah, in this like plastic bag. It was frightening, but that yeah. went in a completely different direction than I thought it would. So thank God. <laughs> no, 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 that would have been bad. I never actually saw Godzilla in its entirety until like a couple months ago. And I remember thinking, eh. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's Roland Emmerich. So you know what you're getting. 
and it was kind of the Simpsons movie before the Simpsons movie, considering that he had Hank Azaria, Harry Shearer, and Nancy Cartwright in the same film. But it was just, eh. yeah, <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Considering how much it was like hyped, it was like going to be the big movie of 1998. They were teasing it for over a year in theaters. They had buses, they had buildings with, you know, and it was like, it comes out and people left a collective. Okay. When's Armageddon coming out? <laughs> yeah. so true. Which was so much better. <laughs> yeah, well, compared to the comparatively, it was. Crying Ben Affleck will always be better than Godzilla. Thank you so, very much. Uh, <laughs> it's so not deep impact. Uh, I agree. <laughs> no. I am a deep impact fan over Armageddon any day. Yeah. Deep impact had a lot more emotional depth to it and you know, less explosions, I guess. What do you have, Mark? All right. So for my music selection. We're going to go to the fall of 1979. Now, this band was about to go under a major overhaul. They were going to introduce a new logo. That logo would be known as the Crimson Ghost, which is now famous. Uh, it's a nice skull logo. And, uh, you know, with the new logo came a new look. They decided to put on a little more makeup, and they had the devil lock hairdo, some black clothing, skeleton shirt and gloves, and all of a sudden... The Misfits became the icon of horror punk with their fourth release, Night of the Living Dead, which they actually released on Halloween night. And a really cool move. They actually pressed about 2,000 copies of this on black 7-inch vinyl. And you could actually buy them there at their show at Irving Plaza in New York City. Now, I'm sure the record labels would be thrilled that they were pressing and selling albums at the door. But you know what? This was released on Plan 9 Records, which was Glenn Danzing's uh, record label. So that's what I got for my selection. It's Night of the Living Dead, inspired by, of course, Night of the Living Dead, the George A. Romero classic by The Misfits, released October 31st, 1979. Damn, that's a good one. I, that was the first band that I looked for. In 1985, and I think their closest album was like 83. Yeah, and see, you probably should have had this one because listeners of this show will know me picking the Misfits is like you <laughs> picking the Grateful Dead. Yeah, I know, which I have. <laughs> I know nothing about punk music whatsoever. This might have been the first Misfits song I've ever listened to. That's solid. That's solid. And how was it? Uh, it was. It was. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's actually a really. It's actually a really good tune. What kind of makes a song I wouldn't expect to get out of a punk song, and that's harmony. Harmony, yeah. Well, that's, There's yep. layers and background vocals to Night of the Living Dead where they harmonize, and then at some points, because it's more of like a, a horrific scream, it kind of is uh, staggered a little bit, and it kind of creates a really eerie feel for the music, and I didn't really expect that out of a punk song, the harmonies. So it's kind of cool, actually. Well, it also means that you now know more Misfits songs than the kids who buy the Misfits shirts at Hot Topic. Ah, well, there we go. <laughs> this is true. All right. Well, let's toss it down to Andre Gower for the ruling on the music round. <sighs> Actually, all good choices. The Godzilla soundtrack is only a good choice because it's, I mean, Godzilla, which is one of my favorite all-time characters let alone monsters. But is Godzilla a monster? He's a monster, but he's a good yeah, monster. Like, so. he, he didn't want to be Godzilla. You know, he got zapped. Like, he was like, hey, man, <laughs> just like vampires. You know, they struggle with yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
very deep on the, you know, the intellectualness of Man Crush's kind of choice and the fact that it's Sting. Um, that that was impressive as well. Going out of your box, Mark, and going uh, apparently way out of your box and going uh, punk uh, with the Misfits. <laughs> Uh, you know, we can all relate to being misfits at some point in our life, but uh, yeah, you didn't go out of your box. That was, you know, that's, that's gotta be there too. But uh, if I have to make a ruling uh, and I don't get help from my licorice bite, um, I'm going to have to go with uh, at Yeah. You know, like, and it's a very jazzy album. I listened to it for the first time because I listened to it back in the day. So first time probably in years. I'm a bigger police fan than I am a sting fan and it's, it's good, but it's kind of like, I see how this song went and it goes, but the rest of the album, I just couldn't get into, but that's me personally. And I know what Mark's thinking with when I picked uh grateful dead that time, you really have to dig when it's a band that you don't like, but you have to make the pick because it's just too good to pass. Exactly. I know how you feel. Exactly. Like you just, your heart's not there, but your head is right. And everybody got I was doing a Roxanne thing, right? Yeah. Okay, good. All right, Man Crush, you picked up the first point, but more importantly, you get to select the next category. Where are we going? Mm, Man. Let's go. Let's go news on this one. Why not? Uh, So January 85, you know, I was looking for some creatures from the water because let's face it, Gilman was frightening as fuck in that movie. I mean, Wolfman gets like all the attention there, I think, but Gilman, he was like nightmare fuel in that movie. So yes. in 1985, there's lots of talk about like the Loch Ness monster. And there's like a plethora of ripoffs from like every lake in the entire United States and Canada, but that's boring. So I went with the only legitimate news source when it comes to monster sightings, weekly world news. And the title of this article here is, Diver attacked by mermaids by a man that digs way deeper than the folks at CNN, the infamous investigative reporter, Mickey McGuire. And uh, here's a story right here. It's uh, scuba diver Maria Kashtahara. I'm butchering her name, I'm sure. She was caught in a nightmarish fight for her life when she was savagely attacked by legendary creatures believed to exist only in the minds of shipwrecked sailors, a band of mermaids. The 24-year-old Brazilian beauty. I love how she had to be a beauty, too, because she was scuba diving. Uh, She said her only fear was that no one would ever know what happened to her, and that gave her the strength and determination to survive her incredible ordeal in the crystal-clear Caribbean waters off Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. And this is a quote from her directly. It says, I'm really lucky I didn't die. There were four of these beasts, and there was no doubt they wanted to kill me. I've never believed in mermaids, but in stories that I've read, they're supposed to be irresistibly beautiful women. The creatures that attacked me were definitely female. They had human breasts, but they were horribly ugly things. The human part of their bodies was covered with slime and swarming with tiny sea animals. Their hair was like long, oily seaweed. At first, I couldn't believe my eyes. I thought I was having rapture of the deep, but I was only 40 feet below the surface. Then one grabbed my mask, and I felt its slimy skin. It was ghastly, like the flesh of a corpse. I tried to get back to the surface, but every time I started up, I felt an icy, oily hand grab my leg and pull me back down. 
At that point, I knew my only chance was to fight. I just kept kicking and punching with all my strength, but I knew I couldn't keep on fighting for much longer. She figured she was going to run out of air. And all I kept thinking was about my parents and my little sister grieving for me and would never have any idea what happened to me. And just like that, they were gone. Now, sometimes I ask myself if it really happened. I tell myself such things are impossible. Then the terror comes rushing back and the reality is something I can't deny. It's diver attacked by mermaids by the only legitimate source for monster material. Weekly world news. Wow. Hmm. That is compelling stuff, man crush. It's real. It's gotta it's be gotta real. It's gotta be real. Everything in the weekly world news is credible. That's why it's the news, you know? Yeah, of course. Train. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Trevor, what do you have for the news round? Well, uh, just like Man Crush, my only source for truthful and honest monster news is the weekly world news. And for this, for this, I go to April 21st, 1998. I'm having Bigfoot's baby. And apparently a hairy creature rescues college co-ed from rapist. And now she's in love. Oak Ridge, Oregon. I am pregnant with Bigfoot's child. That's mind-boggling claim of Abigail Hutch, who is expecting the baby in May. The teen, who says the astounding conception took place after the hairy seven-foot beast saved her from a near rape, winning not only her gratitude, but also her love. Abigail, 19, told reporters that she's sure the father is Bigfoot. Before him, I was a virgin, she said. The bizarre encounter took place on September 2nd, 1997, as she was hitchhiking home from college. She was picked up by a dark-haired man in his late 20s. Everything was fine until he started talking about his ex-girlfriend, Abigail said, and now the whole atmosphere, and he started looking at me strangely. Then he pulled over to the side of the road and turned off the ignition. The man started making crude comments and attacking her, ripping her to clothes. She was unable to escape from the automobile and began to run down the road. I could hear him gaining on me she said all i wanted to do was get away i was screaming for help when to my astonishment bigfoot suddenly emerged from the shadows and flew at the man who was chasing me <laughs> the two of them struggled for a minute or so then the main man ran back to the car i've never felt such relief bigfoot saved my life and preserved my dignity i would have done anything for him i fell in love and to be honest guys this might not have been bigfoot this could have been a guy from burning man uh because she never can tell <laughs> Yeah, I, I, the story sounds completely feasible, except for the fact that she was a virgin and a seven foot tall Bigfoot impregnated her. I'm pretty sure seven foot tall Bigfoot would split her in half. Yeah, it was like 97. That was just like some look from a fish show. <laughs> well, actually, on the next, actually, Man Crush, if you see on the next page, there's an article, Bigfoot splits woman in half. So, <laughs> and she still has his baby. Wow. <laughs> it's a good one. I'm glad we went with the same source. It, it gives it more credibility. Well, unlike you guys, I did not go with the Weekly World News. I went with some credible journalism. How about some gonzo journalism? We're going to go to the Rock Island Argus out of Rock Island, Illinois. Newspaper January 30th, 1979. In the article, Reporter Goes on Monster Hunt by Dave Hillsammer. I never dreamed I'd go on a monster hunt, but I did near Texarkana, Texas, during a recent vacation. I stepped into a gun shop in Texarkana, and I got talking with the owner, Dick Barton. One thing led to another, and he made mention of the Falk monster, about which the movie Monster of Boggy Creek was made. 
Barton was a hunter and a Texan. He admitted that he thought the Falk monster was a hoax until several years ago when they went out hunting and they found plenty of tracks, they said, and they even took imprintments of the tracks. Now, experts examined them and they said the tracks had to be made by something weighing up to a thousand pounds and nearly seven to eight feet tall. The article goes on here with the with the journalist, of course, inserting himself into this article. So he goes actually hunting with Barton himself. They go into the woods looking for the Falk monster. They're in the woods. They have guns in tow. He's got a, a Winchester with him and a revolver. And they start hearing sounds in the woods. Really not sure what it is. So the article goes on. What the hell was that, I asked. Tom stood up and he said all too calmly, that means it's time to get going home. I agreed. He, he later then asked Tom, was that the monster? And Tom replied, I don't know. I ain't never seen him. So after all of that, he takes him on this whole monster hunt through the woods, shows him the plaster cast of the imprintments of the foot marks or claw marks. Supposedly, it's out there somewhere. He believes it, but he's never seen him. So we're going to some real down-home gonzo journalism from Texarkana, Texas, via Rock Island, Illinois, January 1979. All right, so let's toss it down to Andre Gower for the ruling on the news round. I say the fact that all three examples were pseudo-fictional fantasy monsters instead of actual real ones, and no one went like some political... You know, you know, calling a politician a monster at the time in the news. <laughs> news. Uh, I was waiting for that, but luckily we kept it. Uh, you know, in uh, in in the fun stuff. I don't know about the fox monster. Um, uh, I, I think that's what Bigfoot ended up doing. Yeah. <laughs> apparently, Bigfoot's got nards. Big, he, he, apparently, he does because uh, <laughs> they work. Our our nineteen year old at the time should be. <laughs> you know, not 19 now. And, and maybe, you know, baby Bigfoot is out there and maybe that's a movie. Uh, so I hereby option the rights right now. Um, <laughs> and we can all, you know, share in producer credit. I will say I have, this sounds very, sh sh very, sh uh, uh, very not good. Uh, I use my big words. Um, but I have swam in the crystal waters off the Yucatan Peninsula. <laughs> <laughs> did any oily women grab you and god damn it i did not find any half clothed mermaid oily hair icy handed women swimming in the water all it was was four dorks i went to high school with um <laughs> consider yourself so lucky. i think your story is total bullshit man crush oh. um, <laughs> it's legitimate journalism I'm gonna, and and the 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 fuck monster uh i mean it's sort of is it texas is it is it arkansas uh it, you know they both cancel each other out sometimes i think that's total bullshit i'm going with bigfoot i'm going with bigfoot gotta go with bigfoot that's a solid one did anybody follow up did the attacker actually also get impregnated by bigfoot because we never know about bigfoot like we just hear the girls in love with bigfoot we don't hear it reciprocity here i could read the rest of the article andre if you want I oh mean, no that's I okay i'll look it up later <laughs> it's really a sad story of stockholm syndrome and yeah know, postpartum depression yeah it's beauty and the beast that's yeah. the second part of the story that's fishy it said a couple minutes went by 
Like, would Bigfoot really take a couple minutes to put a dude down? We've seen those jacks, uh, the Slim Jim. No. What, what's the uh it's uh, jack, jack links what's the commercial jack yeah the jack jack links. Links. Yeah, he fucks people up in like two seconds but those are <laughs> fictional man crush this is the oh. real bigfoot not some bullshit Sorry. commercial bigfoot you stay with the truth man crush or you don't talk at all i forgot that it was weekly world news yeah, the sad thing is it probably did only take two minutes for him to impregnate that girl though <laughs> Look, I mean, Bigfoot's in a rut just like all the other animals in the forest, too. You know, it's uh, it's by a lot. I don't know. Yeah, Bigfoot's got to get his. He's got to get his. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Coming soon. How Bigfoot got his groove back. Harry and the Hendersons. <laughs> I mean, this is the alternate ending of Harry and the Hendersons you didn't hear about. So it's a sequel. I'd watch it. No, and I know the girl that was in. No, I don't want to throw these two together. <laughs> I, oh, my gosh. She's. No, she's beautiful and she's a singer. I don't want to. No, the visual is terrible. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah. All right, Mo- moving on. I am mad at myself for continuing this. All right, Trevor, you pick up your first point here on Dueling Decades, and you take control of the board for our final one-point round. Let's go to hot products. Ooh, hot products. Okay, now my hot product was introduced at the 1998 Toy Fair. I couldn't find an exact date of when it was released, but. 40 million of these things were sold during the first three years of its original production, including 1.8 million in 1998 alone. I mean, it was the hot Christmas product of the year. It was inspired by the Tamagotchi and it pretty much made eBay what it is today because people were buying these things and reselling them for God awful prices. And even though it only cost like 35 bucks, they were selling them for like hundreds of dollars because this was, this was like the cabbage patch kid of the time. Um, if you guys remember Cabbage Patch Kids, probably do because we're all 80s children here. The product I am referring to is the monster that is Furby. I recall this. Yes. Those things would not shut up as much <laughs> as you tried to. And the only reason I had one is because it was a gizmo Furby. Weren't those the ones that were banned from bases? I, I think so. Because they, yeah. like, they repeated yeah. stuff, I think. Yeah, they repeat. They recorded stuff and repeated it. <laughs> I had a Gizmo Furby. I put batteries in it, and I instantly regretted it because the thing would not shut the fuck up as much as I tried. But yeah, that was the only reason I would own one of those things. Yeah. Sure. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Furby. Likely story, man. Don't judge me. <laughs> oh, we're not. We're judging Furby. <laughs> everyone had one at some point. No, everyone did not. One. Hell no. Well, I'm. You're. You're. You're older than you're a little bit older than we are. Um, I didn't have one, but my my wife's brother had one, and he graduated in oh one. So that was like what? right around that area. In oh one, high school in oh one. This is her little brother. Okay, yeah. And so he had one in like ninety eight, ninety seven, and I remember that thing, and he lit it on fire. <laughs> Good which for I him. Remember, so yeah, so it wasn't all bad. <laughs> you sure, he's not a serial killer by now. <laughs> uh, I hope not. He's a hero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. are furby's monsters in a different way to you now andre other than the fact that they look like one are they a monster in your head i think what they are, are just things that uh, wake you up at night and not because of the actual physical toy but the fact that human beings respond so moronically to things like furby that they can buy them on ebay for hundreds of dollars uh, instead of paying, I'm sure everybody could use that money on something else, but they had to have a Furby, either for themselves or for their kid. Um, 
I, yeah, it, it's just, it's fascinating that uh, we, we as humans get uh, caught up in something like that. That's why I occasionally cheer for the meteor. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray to that. Like I said, damn impact. It's like, <laughs> you know, Biederman, whatever, tiny one, nothing. All you did was kill Taylor Leone. Taylor Leone was the only one I wanted to live. It just missed us. God damn it. <laughs> Maybe next time. <laughs> Again. All right, Man Crush, what do you have for the Hunt Products round? All right, let's go back to various dates in 1985. I've never done that on a show before. So for the first time, we got various dates in 1985. And instead of finding a physical product, I went with something that's a bit outside the box. And I, I mentioned various dates because this event was so popular, they ended up holding it in New York and Los Angeles in 1985. They had New York's in May, and then they had LA's, I think it was in November. Both events sold out. And this was considered by many as the first considerable horror convention at the time. At the very least, this would have been the largest since it was put on by Fangoria and Creation Entertainment. Andre, I don't know if you guys were part of this a couple of years later. We'll, we'll get to that in a second here. But when I think of conventions now, I'm literally lost in the sauce because conventions, there's tons of them for any genre. And they are a dime a dozen these days. But back in 1985, People were really excited for the chance to share their love of guts and gore by attending the very first Fangoria's Weekend of Horrors. And that initial Weekend of Horrors was headlined by horror royalty. We had Wes Craven, Toby Hooper, Tom Savini, Rick Baker, Elvira, Robert Unglin was there. Uh, friend of the show, William Catt was there. Lots of other people. This event was so popular. In fact, Fangoria ended up releasing the footage of this event, actually, it was of the California event to VHS in 1986, which goes by the same name. And if you're interested in checking that out, go to YouTube. The full 60 minute time capsule is there for your viewing pleasure. And if you're like an avid convention fan and you've been trapped in your house all of 2020, I suggest watching at least some of it. It's pretty damn hilarious to see some of the old school cosplay from 1985. <laughs> some is pretty legit. There was one dude who had like this body with him with an eye ripped out, which was amazing looking. I thought it was, uh, I don't even know who made it. Uh, there was also a dude, I swear to God, I was watching this. If you're watching this and you find a guy in this documentary that looks like Howard Stern, please message us on our <laughs> Facebook. So I know that I'm not the only person. I'm pretty sure it wasn't him, but it's a complete doppelganger. Uh, again, www.facebook.com forward slash dueling decades. Uh, the other events they had for this weekend, they had a preview of the upcoming Nightmare on Elm Street 2. They had the trailer for that. Obviously, they had the panel of Wes Craven and Robert Englund uh, promoting that movie. They had signatures, photo ops, panel with special effects legends. They had Savini and Baker together. They had the Elvira panel. Obviously, lots of vendors. And the other part, if you're going to watch that documentary, there's a live auction. And the guy that wins the first live auction has the best mullet i have ever seen in my entire life his whole entree like every part of his ensemble is just amazing so go and check that out uh and then the whole thing they had uh, movies both days and then it was headlined by george romero's 1978 classic dawn of the dead and finally actually the last thing that they did was the world's most disgusting slideshow i don't know it was on that uh, i wish i did uh, but tickets for this were nine dollars at ticketron nine bucks $12 at the door. Compare that shit to the conventions of today. You can go like 25 times for that amount. Uh, Weekend of Horrors would go on uh, for multiple decades. 
Uh, in 2008, Fangoria, they ended up splitting off from Creation Entertainment, but Creation Entertainment continued it, and it looks like there's another one happening next year in June, and that's going to be at the New Jersey Convention Center. So be there for another weekend of horrors. Nice. All right, so for my hot products round, you know, I kind of looked at all the different products uh, that we could find monsters in. And one thing just always came back to me, and that was the world of comic books. And in 1971, the Comics Code Authority kind of relaxed all their longstanding rules on monsters and vampires. And they started to allow vampires back into comics. Now, Marvel had kind of tested those waters before with their character Morbius. Because he was kind of a vampire, kind of not. He was the living vampire, so to speak. So, in 1979, Marvel decided to launch a new title. And they decided to go with Bram Stoker's classic character, Dracula. Partly because it's a name everybody knows for a vampire. And it happens to be in the public domain. So they launched the title, The Tomb of Dracula. And my pick is the end of this run. In 1979, August of 1979 we saw the burial so to speak of the tomb of dracula the series ends with the main character harker actually killing himself by blowing himself up and burying count dracula underneath the rubble of castle dracula so kind of becomes a, the hero becomes like a suicide bomber at the end to take out count dracula and himself it's an absolutely stunning series in terms of artwork the style and interpretation of Count Dracula in this, the shading, the colorization is phenomenal. They still consider The Tomb of Dracula to be one of the top 10 series that Marvel put out in all of the 1970s. Now, if you look at all the characters that Marvel had during the 1970s, I mean, you have X-Men, everything, Tomb of Dracula, they're still putting that right in there. So that's my pick for the hot products round. The end of The Tomb of Dracula. From Marvel Comics. I didn't know where you were going when you said uh, Harkin uh, blew himself. He did. He blew himself. To death. To death. <laughs> and that's how it killed Dracula, man. Hey, if you're going to go out. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess that's me, huh? That's me deciding. Um, yeah, we already know Furby's out. Uh, he's on fire. Um, <laughs> on fire. Sorry, Trevor. He's dead. Um, <laughs> Your hatred, your vitriol is like there's something in you, something happened to you in your past to make you just completely fucking hate these things. Well, I don't I, I think what it, I think you're right. I don't like talking dolls and I certainly don't like dolls with the eyeballs that that move like that. Uh, no, that's out. No. Out. Go away. <laughs> um, the uh, well, you, you know, you're, you're much better looking than a, a googly eyed doll that closes. I'm putting that on my Facebook think, profile. Thank you. I think dolls or things that talk um, are or sketchy. And, and you know what? I think the the seed of that is talking Tina, the Twilight Zone episode. Who I did yep. not like talking Tina. She scared the shit out of me. Hello, my name is Talking Tina, and I don't like you. Nope. See ya. <laughs> imagine alexa had eyeballs because that's that basically that's 2020 like alexa Whew. is the furby of 2020 just without the body we 
That bitch comes on anytime. Like we'll be sitting in the living room and she just starts spinning. The light starts spinning. Yeah. And she'll sometimes just starts playing music. It's like nobody even asked you. The other day, my my daughter texted me and she goes, did you just put a rap song on at home? And I was like, no, I'm at work. Yeah. She's like, I was sitting downstairs and Alexa just started playing some rap songs. So I'm hiding in the closet in my room. That's that's just conditioning. I mean. Kurzweil was right. He called it in the 70s. I mean, the machines are going to take over and damn it, all the Furbies are going to come out of someone's storage locker and kill us all. (laughs) Um, Let's see. Okay. Uh, Furbies on fire out. Uh, It's, you know, it's tough because I'm, I'm, I'm partial to Fangoria. I just did a conversation on Fangoria, which is awesome. You know, it got, you know, uh, rebought again and, and is launching awesome things. And uh, a lot of the stuff that we all enjoy, uh, whether you're a monster kid or not a monster kid, I was technically more of a sci-fi kid um, uh, than I was monsters, but I love horror and, and I love sci-fi. That's why Starlog is cool. Um, <clears throat> but having the first convention is, is, is pretty baller, right? Because um, it was that 85, it was 85 first convention. yeah started that's pretty tough right there um now not the first convention no no, no not the first convention, convention but sort yeah, of yeah. in this space of what we've turned into in conventions it was nine dollars and i've been a guest at a convention that it cost you nine hundred dollars to go meet the cast from back to the future um let's Damn. see uh so I, I can also either hate them for starting off this current modern wave of convention <laughs> uh craziness uh you know, hey, I love all the conventions. I love meeting fans. Um, some conventions are better than others. Uh, sometimes there's no uh, irony in the fact that you can't spell convention without con. Um, and that's what's tough. I think that's a... Um, I've heard, I hear that. I, I think that's a unfortunate... I think that's an unfortunate uh, thing that has evolved over the last, I don't know, maybe 10 or... Just, just 10 or 12 years, I think, right? I think over the last, like, five years, it's gotten really bad. Yeah. Um, like, like there's popping up, like, everywhere. And 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 they're more Walmart-style. They're kind of big box. Uh, you know, some are very cool. I loved when, when mom-and-pop things grow into popularity, you know, popular things. But, boy, they had right. Cassandra. They had Elvira. They had Cassandra Peterson in the first one and all those other great names. That's tough. That You know, that's a that's a thing. But I, I think I'm leaning towards, I think I'm leaning towards Harker bl- uh, blowing himself up <laughs> to save the world from Dracula because I can relate to that. All Makes right. sense. Now, what I was going to ask you, did you guys ever get to do that convention in 87? Uh, no, because our movie bombed. <laughs> <laughs> See, this, like we had this conversation. Uh, there's another guy that comes on the show sometimes. He's big into movies, Mike Ranger. And uh, we had we both had this conversation because at the time in 1987, when this came out in New York, this was like a big deal. And when I I didn't realize it wasn't as popular until I watched your documentary. And I was like, really? Because like everybody around me was up in arms for this movie. I went the opening weekend with my friends Pat and Brent and we went and saw that movie. And like all the reviews, I pulled a couple while I was going through stuff. And this is from Poughkeepsie Journal, which is right around the corner. It says Monster Squad is for the kid and all of us. Uh, it got three out of four stars in the Daily News. So, like, there was a lot of big news. Do you think, or a lot of big reviews, do you think at that point, if you guys would have waited till eight, maybe, like, 88, once The Lost Boys was already released, would it have been that 
big hit? Because I think it would have, because in my neck of the woods, it was huge. I, who knows? I think probably yes, if you released it at any other time than it did and also had a completely different marketing campaign than it actually yeah, had sure. because it had kind of two or three parallel, very contradictory, you know, marketing like push posters and stuff. And it was, um, you know, another, another interesting fact is, you know, you, you mentioned something that's not unfamiliar that everybody that saw it or certain people that saw it uh, just thought it was this huge thing and they loved it. And they went on and they talked about it with their friends in, in, in the cul-de-sac or in the schoolyard. Um, it's an interesting phenomenon. I think it, was technically a word of mouth movie. That's how, you know, when you recorded off HBO and shared it with your pals, or you went to the video store and just went back every weekend until they finally just gave you the damn tape, um, you know, which happens thousands and thousands of times. The yeah. problem is back in 87, you have 72 hours to make your mark. And that's it. If it, if it doesn't happen, then I got to move on blink and it's gone. Uh, I think monster squad was a kid in the schoolyard uh, you know, kids in the neighborhood, schools, uh, you know, kids in their backyards and tree houses and on their bikes talking to their buddies. And, you know, you went to see it and you said, hey, man, you got to go and see this movie. And then your friends are like, yeah, let's go next weekend. And it's not there because right. it doesn't get a second weekend. I think the most it got was three weekends somewhere. And that's that's not a lot. When I was when I was looking at my neck of the woods today, because I was I pulled up that Poughkeepsie Journal, which is like maybe 45 minutes from where I grew up. Cause my local newspaper isn't in there, but um, they actually had it through August into the beginning of September at the uh, South Hills mall. So I thought that that to me was a pretty big deal. The biggest problem I think that happened for us was that was released in August. And in New York, we go back to school in September. Right. So like, who are you talking to except for the kids in your neighborhood? You're not talking to the kids in the playground because you're not in school yet. And then, like you said, I guess it could be out the door by that point. Absolutely. And then, you know, they, I'm, you know, being a kid's movie, they wanted to, I'm sure, release it in the summer when school is not in play, but that's where you don't get the word of mouth. So you're relying on marketing, advertising, and reviews. And uh, luckily, Poughkeepsie, I guess, had a favorable review. You know, that ratio was very low. <laughs> you know, most of the reviews in 87 were this movie sucks and the kids are dumb and the story's stupid. Uh, and all of those people are, you know, uh, dead yeah well, dead um <laughs> but they you know they need some hugs or something but uh you know what all the movies that they said were great you know probably don't have the lasting power that monster squad actually had and has nothing to do with me or any you know any of the cast we're just fortunate right. enough to be a part of this story that somehow connected and impacted with people on some level that they would not let go and never will and you know that's what we look into in the documentary Wolfman's got nards. Check it out at the squad doc. Um, Andre, do you mean this? Oh yeah, this that one right there. As Trevor has. <laughs> you know. Oh, okay. And you can also get it on Blu-ray at Amazon.com. Um, and check it out your uh, any of your favorite VOD platforms. Um, very deftly done. Was that not very smooth? Um, no, that was nice. It was like we plugged it in there. I like it. <laughs> yeah. You know, was... and that's one of those interesting things where, you know, who knows what have been. Um, but because of the stories, the heart, the authenticity, the archetypes, the, the, the things that the kids saw and heard in this movie that they instantly related to or wanted to learn about, or, you know, were wanted to be a part of, that's what keeps it lasting. And, you know, there's an interesting yeah. conversation that movies like the monster squad and monster squad in particular, um, 
you know, they still work today with second generation kids because those basic things still connect. But original fans that now have five, six, 10 year olds, 12 year olds watch this movie in a completely different perspective now because they have their own kids. So they're watching it from another level. Now they connect on it on a whole other paradigm. And these, you know, conversations are now popping up in the last couple of months that in 20 years from now, the Monster Squad and movies like Monster Squad that have these kind of archetypal connections and things that kids or whoever watches can relate to will still be watched and will still be appreciated and admired and connected to other than giant, super slick, fun animated movies that we have currently that no one's going to give a shit about in 20 years. Absolutely. We we talk about that on the show all the time. And one of the things I brought up with, uh, who was that? Who was on that episode with us when I said numbers don't matter? It was that uh, Sam Levine, yes, and he like kind of he kind of killed me for it, but he kind of understood like numbers don't matter in the time because if you look at a movie over the long run, there's lots of movies that made tons of money like in the '90s. You could pull up, like The Pelican Brief or like some random movie <laughs> that made a ton of money. I would never go watch that again. I just like. Why would you bother? No, the Pelican Brief does not need a second watch or third watch. You no, know, uh, no, maybe not maybe at all. And there's there's lots of movies like that. Like, why would you watch it again? But movies like yours, you know, we'll watch it again and again and again. And one of the great things, and you guys said it in the documentary, how you guys talked like kids. Yeah, you know, you you didn't sound like robots. You saw you sounded like asshole kids that went to my school. There were, and I was those asshole kids. Like we kind of had that thing that we, we were the same people at the time. And my daughter now is 14. So I kind of grew up with like all this new stuff that's on Nickelodeon now or Disney channel, these shows that she used to watch and they're horrible. They're totally written by like a 50 year old Yeah, and it comes across like that. And that one didn't, it, it just sounded like shit we said on the playground. Um, I kind of had a different experience with Monster Squad. I remember seeing like a TV spot when I was like seven years old on TV. And I was like, holy shit, this is like my movie. This is my kind of fucking movie. I'm like, I didn't say that because I was seven, but I was really excited. I'm like, but the seven-year-old me didn't know or realize the, 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 that there was a time between theater and video so I would constantly ask my dad to go to the video store for a movie I just saw on the television commercial <laughs> for and check for Monster Squad. I'm like, I would tell him every day, Dad, check for Monster Squad. Is Monster Squad there? Do they have Monster Squad? Finally, one day he comes in, clamshell case, like you know how they used to do. And I see that. I'm like, oh, my God. And I watched it, and it was like everything I wanted to be. And I, and my mom's friend actually ripped the ripped the movie onto a tape for me. Sorry, Andre. Didn't mean to cut the profits. They didn't go to me. Don't worry about it. And... <laughs> And well, it got to the point we were watching the movie. It got to the point where the Wolfman exploded, and my mom leans over to me and goes, "Are you sure you want this recorded?" <laughs> I'm like, "Yeah." And it for the longest time, it felt like I was the only one who really knew about this film. I, I didn't really talk to friends about it, and like Monster Squad, what's that? Only when the internet was invented did I kind of realize that there were fans out there. And like, I would check IMDb because when they used to have message boards, and people were like. When is this getting a DVD release? How come no one else has heard of this movie? This is the greatest movie ever. Finally, Lionsgate released that amazing two-disc DVD. And that was my first con, actually, when I met you, uh, Ryan, and uh, Fred, at, and uh, Ashley. San Diego Comic-Con? Yeah, t- yeah okay. 2007. Yeah. 
actually, I first met you. Uh, I just, like I was stalking you or nothing. You're taking out your trash. <laughs> Garbage day. No, it was at a screening in Santa Monica. I believe uh, uh, at the at the Arrow. That was just like the week before, or a couple of days before. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. Well, I wanted to see it on the big screen. It wasn't because you guys. Well, it was kind of because you guys were there. But I thought I wanted to see this on the right. big screen finally, right. and it was really cool to see. And Stephen Mocked actually comes up to me and goes, "What? What is? What? What do you think is the appeal <laughs> of this movie?" I'm like, "Well, he wasn't asking me like he didn't get it. He was asking me if he yeah. just wanted my opinion." And I was like, "Well." It's kind of funny, but it's kind of dangerous. It's kind of mixed. And what I also liked about the movie is that, well, yes, the kids talk like kids, but the parents weren't stupid. They weren't like, they don't know they, what they weren't parents. It's like, oh, I don't know what's going on with my kids. And, oh, we're just silly kind of, I mean, it dealt with a heavy subject with the parents yeah, fighting. Yeah. So, and, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, we were talking about before that relates to kids that were watching it because a lot of parents were having issues you know, when you were eight, nine, 10, 12, 13 years old and everybody's like, oh shit, the kids in the movie are going through exactly what I'm going through. <laughs> you know, I, my parents fought just like that in the other room the other day. My friend Newman was like, he went with me to see it and he had noticed something that I didn't notice beforehand is like, there's, there's a scene where um, I think Dale comes home asking where the kids are and he noticed the that there was a suitcase yeah. by the door. Yeah. And like, I didn't know that before that she was going to yeah. leave. So I'm like, that's kind of heavy stuff for a kid's film. And what's interesting that you mentioned one of that thing that you noticed is you won't see that uh, unless you're watching uh, it on widescreen. Yeah. Because that luggage gets cut out of the shot on pan and scan or on uh, even the HBO or your VHS tape. And a lot of, a lot of people miss that until they see it in widescreen. And luckily the 2007 20th anniversary is widescreen, you know, proper ratio and, you know, there, there's a there's a handful of visual things that you miss uh, not in widescreen. That's the key one. And then the other one that I always uh, get annoyed that is missed is uh, it's a great payoff to a setup with the great scene between Phoebe and Emily uh, when they're talking about the lightning and monsters coming and are you going to yell at him? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's the whole family dynamic. And she goes, no, I mean, John. Yeah. And um, but that whole conversation was as long as the candles burning, uh, the monsters will stay away. It was just, you know, an easy just kind of thing to make your kid settle down and go to sleep. Uh, but when the mother's alone and things are starting to ramp up down in the lower corner, the candle blinks out uh, for no reason. And that's why she turns around. Uh, but now if you see that in not widescreen, you don't see the candle blink out and you just see the mom turn around in the closet for some reason. It makes no sense. There's there's a lot of stuff in there for sure that uh, I don't know if Shane and Fred were planning on these things landing and being archetypal or uh, uh, visceral as they are. Uh, I think they were just writing uh, in a in a realistic and authentic way uh, with heart. You know, I always say heart and authenticity uh, are kind of the adjectives that uh, describe this movie for me. Uh, yeah. But they also weren't that much older than we were. So it wasn't like you said, 50 year olds writing down to kids and trying to be like, right. oh, when I was a kid, what did we say that was funny? Oh, yeah, it was uh, golly gee willikers like you sucked on my lollipop. You know, it's like, Arr! and that's where you get a lot of movies that have ensemble kids or one or two kids. And it's, you know, Dennis the Minners and Leave it the Beaver were great in their time because of, you know, that's the thing. Uh, it's easy to write them like the little rascals. You know, and, and that's I mean, that's really what the Monster Squad is. And it had the kid it had the kid edge to it, too. Right. 
if you watch it now, like if my daughter watched it, she'd be like, whoa, like, did they just say that? Yeah. You know, uh, but to me, like we grew up on movies like that. I'm, Trevor, I've had this conversation with before, like there's language that are in movies in the, even up to like 2010, where in 2020, you could not do it. And like this movie would jaws would drop if they didn't hear they'd be like oh wait what did he just call him like yeah it wow. gets uh it's you know there's some dialogue that's problematic now and uh yeah. and that and that's okay that it is you just need to have uh, you need to have a reasonable conversation about yeah. that if you're going to discuss it you can't just yeah. dismiss and delete something uh when right. you weren't especially if you weren't there to even get it so you need to you know right. at least gain a little you, i'm not trying to change your mind about anything but you at least have to have some sort of critical thought or reasoning in a conversation about it which is fine and, it's 1987 you right. know at the end of the day right the fact that we still recognize that there is something wrong with these movies that just shows how much we've grown as a society and a culture so why go back and change the art when it represents the current time that it was created in Right. And it's not, you know, it's not just the 80s with certain groups. These are the one, these are the groups du jour, uh, you know, that end up, ha you know, you can you can basically pick out and put in a basket, whatever you, you know, whatever you want to have. And that's I'm not saying that's 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 bad. Uh, but basically, the depiction and treatment of, you know, pretty much most women on screen has been shit forever. And, yep. uh, you know, people just kind of go along with it. And we don't really have the conversations about that, whether it's the you know, kind of talk down to just secretary vibe and, you know, being mistreated, you know, by the boss, or if you're going into the horror genre, uh, you know, you know, how sometimes poorly they're treated or they're dismissed or they're the first, you know, they have the most really, you know, vicious penetrating quote unquote kills, you know, in horror. And, you know, that's a reason. And, you know, why, you know, most teenage guys in the seventies or eighties watch these movies and like them, they don't realize, you know, what, what's happening, you know, in their subconscious there, but we don't get that kind of, you know, now we're having that conversation and understanding that how that affects, you know, you know, 51% of our population and you can go back and it's like, what do you, are you, but are you going to erase every single movie ever made or song exactly. or TV show or book or piece of art? And no, you can't, and you shouldn't, uh, but you can certainly have, you know, uh, upfront and uh, updated, reasonable discussions about this and then learn from that, like we were talking about with, you know, all the other, uh, you know, things that pop up. And that's just, like you said, yeah. that's, uh, I think, evolving as uh, a species, evolving as a society, yep. uh, anthropologically, you know, or, uh, you know, at least a little bit. I think we got a long way to go. You know, I'm, I'm not yeah. quite there yet. I'm still rooting for the meteor, but, you know, let's... Uh... <laughs> I'm with you on that one. All right. So what did you pick for this round? Oh, oh yeah. No, the Furby was out. So we were going with uh, Fangoria or the uh, the Tomb of Dracula. Oh, I thought I finished that. I'm going with yeah. Tomb of Dracula. I, yeah, okay. I did. Okay. Tomb of Dracula because I related and it's, yeah, it's cool. Although I do the, the Fangoria convention uh, gets honorable mention. All right. Well, I picked up a point in the last round. I take control of the board and the game is tied at one point apiece. You know what, gentlemen? I think we're going to go over to the television round. So for my television selection, we're going to go over to November 17th and November 24th of 1979. And if we flipped on the tube on CBS, we could check out some monsters in Stephen King's Salem's Lot. 
debuting on TV as the made-for-TV movie. Now, Stephen King, the master of horror, Andre, you might have heard of this guy before, you know, Stephen King. So I, I have. I, I have heard of I think this it's individual. Um, apparently, he's okay. Yeah, um, I think he's all right. Yeah. Um, he, writes very, <laughs> he writes very, 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 very long books. <laughs> um, very quickly. Very, too, <laughs> right, very, is... Like, how does that pour out? He was on cocaine. That's how he did it. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll go to an article in the Bangor Daily News, November 17th, 1979. Says, hey, that's my guy, said Stephen King, gleefully as he sat watching a preview screening of Salem's Lot a four-hour, two-part TV movie based on the novel he wrote about vampires taking over a small main town. So Salem's Lot, it's kind of like this epic novel by Stephen King. They had to condense it down a little bit and take out some of the key plot elements. The big thing that's missing, and it's kind of something that I did see some small parallels in Monster Squad with. In the novel, one of the main characters is the town. There's kind of the foreshadowing in the the story that not only is the vampire draining the life from the people, he's draining the life from this small New England town. So it kind of shows the effect of what would happen if these monsters, in this case a vampire, really existed, what they would do to some of these small towns. So I think that's something that, unfortunately, they didn't explore a lot in the TV movie. But nonetheless, Salem's Law, I think it was the first time I ever saw a vampire portrayed on TV, and it scared the living daylights out of me. I never even finished watching it. I was horrified as a young child. So that's my pick on CBS November 1979, Stephen King's epic, Salem's Lot. Mark, I love it when you figure out the soft spot in a judge. And then you you pander to it like you <laughs> you tune it. Oh yeah, it's kind of like Monster Squad. Uh, like we're just I I've noticed that I'm on to you. I'm on. To don't you. don't worry, guys. I am impervious to, <laughs> to 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 bullshit. Andre, have you gotten Mark's check in the mail yet? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. He Venmoed me like an hour ago. Um, you sent a check, Trevor, <laughs> rookie. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> all right trevor what do you have for the television round okay well for my television round just like monster squad this film has become a halloween staple it premiered on october 17th 1998 on the disney channel it is made for kids just like the monster squad and it spawned three sequels unfortunately uh not like monster squad it's become a kind of a halloween tradition they show it on free form a lot during there it stars debbie reynolds and judith hogue those are the only two I could remember, other than the guy who played the principal in summer school. Um, it's about a little girl who finds out she's descended from a family of witches and goes to Halloween Town to help her grandmother save the town from this dark force that is sucking the life out of it. So just like Monster Squad. Um, and Salem's Lot. And, and Salem's <laughs> Lot. So my pick for the television round is Halloween Town. So 90s. All right, Man Crush, let's hear what you have for the television round. All right, so let's go to September 7th of 1985. Here's a show that I love growing up, and I know I've said this many times on this show. I never really got into, like, many cartoons because of all the adult-oriented movies that I was watching at a young age. <laughs> and I'm talking, I'm talking regular movies, horror and whatnot, not porn. Like, maybe a little bit later, but not 1985. 
but at the time there were some cartoons that I would watch. It was like He-Man, Rambo, G.I. Joe, and Scooby-Doo. And, you know, basically all the cartoons that I'm sure would aid in my evolution of toxic masculinity, at least that's according to Vogue, what they, they tell me that. But in this particular cartoon, uh, it's an ABC spinoff of Scooby-Doo. And as a kid, I felt like Scooby-Doo never actually ended from one show to another. Between 1969 and 1991, there were roughly eight different iterations of Scooby-Doo, but it never felt that way to me. It just felt like it went from one to the other. I hardly ever noticed the new titles, with the exception maybe of like Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo, because I know like some people hated Scrappy. Uh, but this particular spinoff, The 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo, I figured at the time that this was just more Scooby-Doo, but I was wrong. And I could totally differentiate this series from the rest. For one, they added two characters this one, which I really dug. You got the addition of Flim Flam, who's like a con artist street kid. Uh, basically like the human version of Scrappy-Doo, but less annoying. <laughs> and it was nice to actually finally have a character on this show besides Shaggy and Scooby, who weren't like completely wholesome. And then you had the legendary Vincent Price uh, voicing his own character, Vincent Van Gool. Uh, who basically uses a crystal ball throughout all 13 episodes of this. Like he's using FaceTime to talk to the Scooby's crew, wherever they were in the world. Uh, and two, the biggest part of this whole thing, there's actually an overarching storyline to this. There's continuity from one episode to the next, which you never really got in Scooby-Doo. It was just like one thing would happen next episode. Another thing would happen. Not in this one. So in this, and this is the great part about cartoons, so the gang is heading to Honolulu and they end up landing 7,000 miles away in the Himalayas. I don't know how that happens, but <laughs> that's what happened in the cartoon. And then uh, the stoners that they are, Shaggy and Scooby, they open the chest of demons and they release 13 of the evilest ghosts and demons that, are, that have been trapped inside of this chest forever. And so from there, every episode, they have to capture one of these ghosts from around the globe and then return the thing to the chest in the Himalayas, which seems logistically impossible, but they managed to do it. Hence why it's only 13 episodes, I suppose, because there's 13 ghosts. But if I remember correctly, they actually failed to capture the 13th ghost and they ended up leaving Flim Flam in the Himalayas to like fend for himself. Like they were just like, Oh, we didn't do it. Sorry, bro. Uh, later we're going home. And they just left this fucker there. Uh, not to worry though. This has legs. Uh, they brought this back last year and Scooby-Doo and the curse of the 13th ghost. They bring back flim flam. Uh, supposedly he's running like a t-shirt shop in the Himalayas. I don't even know that's the thing, but he was, but that came out last year to close things up. So it's nice to have legs and some closure, but this is the release of, the 13 ghosts of Scooby-Doo. Hmm. You got a lot of people in the Himalayas wearing t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's a cartoon, man. They landed 7,000 miles away from their destination. You didn't question that. Okay. Well, <laughs> all right. So we got, we got Salem's lot. We've got um, Halloween town and 13 ghosts of Scooby-Doo. I am certainly partial to Scooby-Doo. Um, it's, it's like Monster Squad Flim in a lot Flam. of ways with Flim Flam. <laughs> uh, 
I had to get it in. I had to the, even the playing field. It's a luck mush, right? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> see, uh, see, see how I can pull it out of everybody. It's great. I just give him the side eye, and it just happens. Now, if Monster <laughs> Squad was Scooby Doo, I mean, we who, did have a dog. Yeah. Who was the Scrappy of the Easy. bunch? Eugene. <laughs> you think it was Eugene? Yeah. <laughs> and Pete was Scooby Doo. We we had Daphne, who was Patrick's sister. We had Velma, that was Phoebe. You would have to be Fred. <laughs> Although I didn't wear a scarf, I guess yeah, that was true. <laughs> that was true. <laughs> we actually had a real Fred. We had a Fred Decker. So was, um, yeah, Shaggy would be Rudy. Shaggy would be Rudy. <laughs> or I, I actually, you know, I don't know. I think Shaggy might be Patrick because I think Patrick, you know, kind of grew up and just hit the bowl a lot. <laughs> He's like, hey, man, you know, like I'm 22 now and like, you know, like 10, 12 years ago, me and my friends in our town went through some major shit. And like, it was awesome when we saved the world. They're like, whoa, that was amazing. What did you do? Like, well, and Patrick's like, I made business cards. <laughs> well, he had to smoke a lot of weed to get over the PTSD. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. And did that scene ever remind you of Stand By Me where he brings the comb? <laughs> It, like it, it's so parallel like the two you know uh probably uh stand by me is tied for my favorite kids adventure movie of all time yeah. oh, it's amazing it's uh it, it really is a good story uh stephen king obviously um oh let's let's go to the round and then we'll talk about that um i'm gonna go uh just because i'm afraid i would be off brand um, I'll, but it was also deeper, scarier, and the 70s. I'll go with Salem's Lot. Ooh. All right. Well, I jump out to a lead three to one heading into the final round, which is, of course, the movies round. I think I'll go first on this one. I'm not going to defer. All right. So my movie came out June 22nd, 1979. And, you know, we're not even going to beat around the bush. It is the most terrifying movie monster i remember seeing as a young child because there were so many incarnations of it and it constantly changed and that is from the ridley scott classic alien found a newspaper article in the spokane review july 6 1979 it says alien it ain't from new jersey not even Roseanne, Rosanna Dana of Saturday Night Live would be able to blunt the terror that cuts through Alien, the summer's grotesquely beautiful monster movie. What is this stuff? One pictures the fr frizzy-haired Roseanne saying when she encounters the alien, You from New Jersey? Before she has a chance to roll the words off her tongue, the alien flashes its razor-sharp teeth, and she's gone. Alien, which opens in Spokane at the UA Cinemas, is one of the most talked about films in years. It debuted May 25th, two years to the day after Star Wars opened, and grossed $8.5 in its first two weeks. That broke the opening records of Star Wars as the all-time box office champ. So this is the start of the monster Alien franchise. This is where it all starts for me. Personally, the sequel, Aliens, was my favorite. But you know what? There is something so raw and scary about the original. I just had to pick it. Um, in the Xenomorph, is there more a more terrifying movie monster? I don't know if there is. Just because it's constantly changing, it can go inside you. Yeah, don't even get me started. But that's what I got. Alien, June 22nd, 1979. To start off the movies round. 
had a great jump scare. One of my favorite jump scares um, was from Alien, where the alien just goes like, <sighs> "I'm like, Wait, fuck! How does it? How does it go? I'm not doing it again." <laughs> <laughs> All right, Trevor. Well, let's hear what you have for the movies round. Well, I went kind of in a different direction with this one. Um, my movie came out, actually premiered at Sundance, January 21st, 1998, and premiered in the U.S. wide in November 4th, 1998. Um, it was nominated for three Oscars, one for Best Adapted Screenplay for Bill Condon, uh, one for Best Actor, Ian McKellen, and one for Best Supporting Actress, Lynn Redgrave. It actually won for Best Adapted Screenplay. Um, exactly. I didn't know this. Um, it was executive produced by Clive Barker, of all people, uh, based upon the book, The Father of Frankenstein by Christopher Bram. It's about the friendship and kind of the final days of James Whale, director of Frankenstein, writer Frankenstein and his gardener Clayton Boone, as he recalls his childhood and experiences in World War Two. The film, of course, is Gods and Monsters, released, like I said, November 4th, 1998. A very uplifting flick. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I actually don't think I ever saw that. I watched it last night. It it's a downer. It yeah. It's sad. I haven't like seen it, it since I think that year, so I don't remember most of it. It's one of those movies that Andre said, you don't need to you don't, we're not gonna watch it again. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't get a second viewing. It's not the hey everybody, what should we pop in? I know. <laughs> Gods and monsters. It's directed by Bill Condon, who did who went on to do like Kinsey, Chicago, Dreamgirls, and I believe this is his magnum opus, The Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn's Part 1 and 2. Can't beat those. I think Bill Condon reached his peak with those films. And that joke died. Okay, <laughs> on. I didn't know if you were serious. I, 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 I was going to go with it. It's, uh, I, I was like, all right, uh, that's good. Because I love Chicago. <laughs> I'm a damn good actor, Andre. What can I do? Apparently, you got me with the. Yeah, you sold that. You got that was, you know, that was, that was good there. What, with this? The, the jump scare. Yes. Oh, you did it again and, for him. Uh... I did it just for a guy, just for him. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate Thank that. Thank you. You're, you're welcome. All right, Man Crush. Let's see if you can tie this game up and keep your win streak alive. What do you have for the movies round? All right, let's go to August 2nd of 1985. Here's one of the, the best vampire movies ever, in my opinion, at least. Matter of fact, I was curious when the last time I watched this was. And we posted this to our Facebook group just like a week ago. So I went into my watch list and I found that I've watched this movie once in July, once in August. Once in September, once in October, and then again last week when I posted it in our Facebook group. So needless to say, I like this movie a little bit. Uh, this movie made roughly $25 million at the box office, roughly $61 million in 2020. So it's not too shabby for a mid-80s horror flick. Uh, this happens to be the directorial debut for Tom Holland. He also wrote this one. and It's the same guy that wrote Cloak and Dagger which I uh, covered a few months back and the same director of child's play. So, you know, you're in for something good here. The movie stars a young William Ragsdale who ended up beating out Charlie Sheen for the lead role of Charlie in this movie. Uh, one of the other lead roles, of this movie was actually written for Vincent Price, who I was talking about earlier. They had him in mind. It was written for him. If you haven't figured out what this movie is yet, it'll be abundantly clear soon. But during the mid eighties, Vincent Price no longer wanted to play in any horror movies because he was so severely typecasted that he would only do like TV spots and commercials and things. He didn't want to be in this movie. So that's why he's not in it. Matter of fact, the character in question in this, his name is Peter Vincent and he's named off a combination of Peter Cushing and Vincent Price. A little homage to both of those horror legends. 
the film would also garner a sequel and a reboot with Colin Farrell in 2011 and a sequel to that one. So if you want to see Marcy Darcy as uh, the hot chick, vampires who try to steal your underage girlfriend, uh, the Jay Giles band, phony vampire hunters, annoying friends you want to die, amazing practical effects, and the illegitimate love child of the Burbs and Bram Stoker's Dracula, then Fright Night is your movie. Damn good choice. All right, let's toss it down to Andre Gower for the final ruling on this game. Trevor, I just want a little, uh, I'm going to recount this uh, election balloting in your county right now. Um, What was there other, what was your other choices for your year? And I want to know why you picked gods and monsters. Well, I picked, God damn it. Um, (laughs) There's no justifying that Trevor. There is no, no, that's not a, it's, you don't, you don't, I'm not going negative here. This is okay. This could help you. I, like I was only going to pick Godzilla. I was because I thought when when I was given the year in 1989, I'm like, oh my god, I got the same thing happened. I'm like, I got this on lock. Godzilla, I'm going to pick Godzilla. Then I was looking at the music, um, and I was like, shit, there's nothing for music that has to do with monsters from 1988. So I was kind of in a bind. Um, Trevor, just say it. Brendan Fraser is damn sexy in a 1950s bathing suit. Well, he's a local boy too. He 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 he. <laughs> He he went to college at he went to college in Seattle, so I got to give it up to a local boy. He went to college. He he went to the he went to a Cornish College of Arts downtown Seattle. Oh, I thought he um, went to an all boys school. Yeah, he played yeah, football he was, there too, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. And then he like didn't Joe Pesci live in his in co- dorm? Or well, that's like when his... he was in college. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I, that, yeah. That was the next school. Yeah. I yeah. thought you were. I thought you were going the school ties route, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is going to get dark." He did. But um, by the way, I love with honors. Thank you for that uh, little shout out there. It's a, a good movie. That's a great. Movie. Does anybody ever notice that you know? Because the thing that Brendan Fraser, uh, anybody seen Dickie Roberts? It's Fraser, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, it's a great little throwaway line. Love David Spade. Um, in with honors though. You know, there's the whole thing he stays home because he breaks his leg. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Do you ever notice throughout the movie the cast switches Switches, legs? yes. <laughs> Constantly? It's one of the biggest fuck-ups I've ever seen in just wardrobe or anybody that's on that. It's like they had a different crew every day. But then it's still not excused because you're the fucking actor that's putting the cast on the opposite leg later on in the afternoon after lunch break. Do you not notice this? And I like Brendan Fraser. I'm okay with Brendan Fraser, except for he never fucking noticed that. <laughs> well, he didn't go to. Harvard. I was too busy looking at Moira Kelly. I was time. way oh. too busy looking at Moira Kelly, <laughs> <laughs> so I did. I didn't even notice. <laughs> um, I guess we have to pick here. I, so I'm going. The, the pick is. Uh, it, it's a bold choice because you could have gone with other stuff. Obviously, Alien is Alien. Um, Fright Night, yeah, great you know, set, set the bar for a lot of things. Alien launched the whole thing as too obvious of a choice. I'm going with the bold deep dive of gods and monsters. Well done. Oh, wow. Well done, sir. Trevor. Well <laughs> done. You. Trevor's like, what? Wait, what the fuck? All right, Trevor. Well, you know where that puts us. That ends man crushes five game win streak, but we're tied. Holy it, shit. We go to the wild card round. You versus me to see who the ultimate winner of this game is. Sorry, man, crush your Venmo didn't go through. Check, check your Wi-Fi. 
I didn't send one. Suck up better next time. <laughs> All right. So I wasn't expecting to get this far in the game. Neither was I. My wild card round pick is a little interesting, but bear with me on this one. We're going to go to a newspaper article in the News Journal out of Wilmington, Delaware, November 4th, 1979, where they're talking about the upcoming release of the brand new Fleetwood Mac album. The album is yet to be named, but they're talking about how the album, there's a lot of pressure on Fleetwood Mac and Lindsey Buckingham to write a new smash hit, to have an album that changes the music industry and be a, you know, just this big monster of an album. The whole article, they're kind of like softening the expectations. They're saying that it's, you know, the album's not going to be as big as people would think. The album hadn't even been named yet. Well, the album in question would end up being Tusk. That was released November 12th, 1979. And the reason I'm picking this for a monster battle, oddly enough, is because of the headline. The headline for this news article is, Max Double isn't destined to be a monster. But oddly enough, many years later, it was. Because this song by Fleetwood Mac was a huge inspiration for Kevin Smith when he made the movie Tusk. Not only is it in the movie... It was the most expensive thing that they used in the movie. He also <laughs> listened to the song on repeat while writing the script. So I thought it was kind of funny and ironic that the headline just reads that it's not destined to become a monster when, yes, indeed, it was. So that's my strange pick for the wild card round. Trevor, what do you got, man? Okay. Uh, Going to be honest here. I didn't expect to get this far. Um <laughs> Where's so, everybody's confidence going? And I'm like, did it all just get sucked out of the room? Come well, on. Okay. I'm, That's because I lost. Yeah. I'm gonna be, oh, we'll, we'll get back to your confidence. We're good. We'll go to I want to hear your wild card anyway. Go ahead, Trevor. Okay. So I'm going with movies of 1998. And this movie has to deal with a monster asteroid coming to. to... <laughs> My pick for 1998 monster is Deep Impact. <laughs> Directed by Mimi Leader, starring Taya Leone, Morgan Freeman, <laughs> John right. Favreau. Oh, wow, well, well played. Uh, way <laughs> to bring it full circle. Um, that's that's well well played and so well played that uh, and you're convincing because you didn't have that prepared because there's no way you could have had that prepared because I've been rooting for the meteor the whole time and we've said deep impact. Uh, Damn it. And Taya Leone. I mean, come on. Such a big Taya Leone fan. She's fantastic. Um, Man Crush, I want to hear your I want to hear your wild card for for shits and giggles anyway. Let's hear it for shiggles. Um, my wild card was going to be the first Friday the 13th game that came out for the Commodore 64. Wow. In 1985. Uh, and I'm going to say no because I never had the Commodore 64. I wasn't cool enough. So um, the, he had the Atari with the ET game. I, I, I did. <laughs> ET. What a game. I was mentioning ET because, well, cause Andre was in the, he was in the commercial for it. <laughs> is, is Trevor the only one that knew that here? That's I, yeah, I didn't it, know you had a commercial. Okay. Tre- Trevor, you no. win because of that <laughs> and deep impact. So we're good. <laughs> It's actually kind of a deep cut. A lot of a lot of people a lot of people know that I was the kid in the ET Atari commercial, and a lot of people don't. Um, now a lot more do. <laughs> At least three or two. Is that one of those things that you want people to know? 
Uh, I'm totally fine with it. Although it's funny because it's a good conversation and some cool shit came out of that. But uh, I have, uh, I got asked or not asked because uh, in a YouTube thread of that commercial in the comments, someone said, I wonder if that kid killed himself for making the worst game of all time. (laughs) And my wife was like, dude, you have got to respond to this guy. And I was like, I am not responding to this guy on YouTube. And that was like 10, that was like 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Uh, so we chimed in and said, no, I'm doing just fine. Thank you. Wait, the title of this episode, instead of like Wolfman got Narts or anything, we're going to be like, we have the kid from the ET commercial. <laughs> totally fine. <laughs> that's, that's totally fine. Uh, just as long as you go to the squaddoc.com or at squaddoc yeah. and, and see the <laughs> Trevor already has his Blu-ray. Be a Trevor. Be a tr- Thank you. I'll put that on a shirt. Yeah, Trevor's a winner. Uh, you and I... <laughs> You and I both know Grace, yeah. right? Yeah. Andre, Grace yeah. Chan. Yeah. The it was funny yeah. because the reason another reason I mentioned it is because the latest issue of the fanzine had this on, and I thought that was kind of brilliant on her part, kind of a I don't know if it was a jab or no, not. No, no, it's a it's an it's it an inside funny. joke that you know, because it's me. And um <laughs> I, I think because uh Ciro Nelly is the artist that did uh the cover art for that in the ET ad. Um one of the fun he has an actual 2600 cartridge in a box and uh, he wanted me i think so he wanted me to sign the box and i was like why am i gonna totally ruin your collectible piece he goes it's so meta it's hilarious just do it um <laughs> he's got a he's got uh he's got some cool stuff and uh that uh an et game actually signed by me which is weird um and uh, right now he currently has um Rudy's bow from the Monster Squad, which Ryan and I brought to his house and gave to him to to hold for us for a while. That's pretty doesn't awesome. uh, that guy from doesn't that guy from Ain't It Cool News still have the amulet or does Fred? No, have- Eric Vespi, uh, formerly of Ain't It Cool News, uh, currently at Rooster Teeth and of the King Cast podcast right now, along with uh, everybody's pal Scott Wampler. Uh, I'm pretty good at these plugs. Um, uh, he has the amulet, which Fred brought to him at that very first Alamo Draft House uh 2006 reunion screening that kind of launched everything uh we have seen he has brought it out and um we, we have had the the amulet uh, out in the open along with some other cool shit that's pretty since he mentioned fred one of the things from the documentary that i kind of picked up on fred sounds really bitter about the whole thing is it is it really that he's bitter or is that just like his demeanor and how it came out well it's i i don't know if i, I think bitterness may come in you know, it came in years ago and it comes in waves and, and goes away. Um, I, I don't know what it is. It's not my really, you know, Fred's the only one that can have this conflicted relationship with this movie. And right. he's been, you know, figuring it out for, you know, really now the last, but 14 years now since that cast reunion screening where people where it started going bonkers and, you know, really over the last 10 or 12 years where this resurgence has just grown and grown. And then, you know, some schmoob goes out and makes a documentary about it. And, you know, uh, what guy is that? I, you know, some, some dork that was in the ET Atari commercial. Uh, <laughs> Henry Thomas. Uh, Henry Thomas is, is awesome. Um, yeah, he's in Bly Manor, which there's a Monster Squad poster and, you know, starting an episode two in the kid's room. That was pretty cool. Uh, but I think, you know, with Fred, you know, it's, it's, 
he's the only one that can have and 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 would have the conflicted relationship that he has. He loves a Monster Squad. He thinks it's his best movie. It's and it's a good movie and it's a great story. The problem is, is you know, it was held to an impossible, you know, barometer of a seventy-two hour window whether you succeed or not. And then, unfortunately, that's your success meter. Um, you know, and then you know, a year later, he made his third movie before he was, you know, twenty-seven or whatever. You know, he made three major studio movies by the time he's twenty-seven. And they all don't do phenomenal. And so do not pass go, do not collect 200, go straight to director jail. And, you know, that kind of sucks. I think that's, uh, not only does it suck for the individuals that it happens to, in this case, like Fred, uh, but it sucks for all of us because we don't get to see all the cool shit that they had in their brain that they wanted to put out. And, you know, if someone like Fred Decker had made Mr. Mom, he would have made 30 other movies by now. And it's crazy, you know, no, you know, no one's too. wearing, you know, Mr. Mom rules shirts. Right now. <laughs> no, not at all. Well, it's I think it's I think, well, obviously, I mean, it's nice to have recognition 20 something years down the line for a movie you did in 87. But, you know, it's kind of better to have recognition at the time so you can do yes. more things. You know, you kind of you kind of want to be recognized for you know, something you do right now, rather than waiting 20 years for, for a screening for a cult following, which is great. The You know, it's great that you guys have this, you know, but it's kind of unfortunate that it kind of got lost. It, in it absolutely isn't. I mean, that's, you know, it's not only uh, unfortunate for Fred as an individual, but like I said, it's always, it's unfortunate for all of us that, you know, would enjoy all the stuff that he would have made. Um, but now, yeah, you know, I mean, now there's cool stuff that he gets to work on. So we can you know, at least make up for that. But, you know, look, we were very fortunate enough to, you know, there, there's a version of Wolfman's Got Nards that uh, doesn't have Fred's interview. Uh, that was the last or the second to last, and, and it took a while. I don't say it took some ribbing or cajoling. That's not what happened. Uh, what it was is I don't think Fred, um, you know, knew really what uh, Henry and I and, and the production team were actually doing with this project. I had told them about it earlier in the year and we didn't really get into the discussion. Um, midway through, you know, he was like, okay, um, go make the movie and then like send it to me. I'll watch a rough cut and then I'll jump in and give you what you need to wrap it up. And I was like, no, that's not what we're doing here. <laughs> and because I know that there's, I, that's not what I'm at. That's not, we're not making this little kind of, you know, you know, sound bite type of thing. You know, right, th- right. this, what we're actually doing is we're not making a documentary about the Monster Squad. We're making a documentary that looks into how things like a film, whatever the film is, can impact somebody right. and change their life. And everybody that's in this movie has a story of how this movie either connected or impacted or changed their life. And you're one of those people, whether you're a fan from Florida or you're Fred Decker, the man who co-wrote and directed the damn thing. Um, you know, no one's on camera really, you know, saying it's a couple, a couple of faces, but they're setting up some, some concepts. Uh, you know, they're all affected and impacted by the film, the monster squad. And the goal of that was to go wider with, it's not just about Monster Squad, it's about any type of thing that can impact your life. Um, And we got very lucky because 
we had to do an event uh, at Fantastic Fest and they had, they wanted a 30 minute rough cut of the doc and we were in the middle of shooting it. And so I had to tell Henry and the guys like, look, I need a 30 minute rough cut. We ended up only needing, like we should have just done 10 because the event changed, but it was still awesome. And But what that did is that gave us an opportunity to cut some pieces together, send it to Fred. And then he saw the 30 minute cut and, you know, he, he, you know, he got in touch with me and was like, all right, I, I see what you're doing here and I see it doesn't look like shit. And um, <laughs> I, I think that's really what it was. You know, it's like, yeah. I don't want to go in there and talk about my conflicted relationship with this movie when someone's making some crappy piece of documentary and, uh, or, you know, crappy piece of doo-doo documentary or something. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure I would have had that same, you know, skepticism, but he saw what we were doing and what, what Henry was putting down and how we were treating it and approaching it. And that's the best thing that could have happened because shortly after that, um, he said, you know, where, where do you want me to go? I said, where are you most comfortable? He said, let's just do it at the house. I said, fine. So we went over and sat him down in his living room and, you know, didn't really change much. I think we had to change like a poster in the background that we wouldn't have gotten cleared. Um, and one of Henry McComas's favorite things about this uh, is the experience that he had as a filmmaker listening to a filmmaker tell his conflicted story about a movie that he really right. likes and thinks is his best work, but no one gave a shit about for 20 years and how that can impact somebody. And if you watch, it's very interesting that, um, you know, from someone that was a little reticent to sit down and actually open up and be that vulnerable about it, uh, you know, and, and I assured him, I was like, look, I'm going to use what you say. I'm not out here as a hit, you know, I'm not, it's not a gotcha thing. It's not a really want to turn right. on the, you know, kind of get the bitterness going. I didn't want any of that. I just wanted, you know, a, a fair, true, you know, a, you know, kind of, um, you know, discussion about his experience I mean, and how, it how really, it affected it. Tie, and, it ties in perfectly to everything else because you get his real feeling for this thing and you're like, Wow. Like I felt at the end of the whole thing, I felt for him. Like I kind of felt bad, like after all of his discussions and everything else, because nobody hears that over the past, uh, what is it? 30 years, whatever, yeah. 33 years. And now you hear it and you're like, man, that sucks. And like you said, just like five minutes ago, look at all the stuff that we might've missed out on over all these years because that didn't take off. And I never even thought about that. Yeah. That's, that's the, that's, that's always it's, my takeaway when, when, when I consider that. And like I said, we were just fortunate enough that Fred was comfortable enough to sit down. And if you watch, we start cameras rolling like in the middle of the day. And in the background, he has a skylight like in the in the den, like behind him. And as before, by the time you get to the end of our on-camera time with Fred, it's nighttime. And so he sat there for hours. And we just sat there and it just went just went through the years. Right. Right. That that's a good segue here. Uh I don't want to keep you that long because we're, I know we're already running. Super no, so I'm deep. fine. If you, I'm good. Chat All away. right, cool. Chat uh, but this, this is a good segue. So like I asked people in our Facebook group, if they had questions for you and stuff. And one of the first comments that's up here, it's a, this is from uh, Jamal young. He says, monster squad better than the Goonies. Very first comment up there. So I figured I'd. Well, Jamal, I think there. you have uh, at least one or two on this panel that would agree with you. I, I stay out of it because, uh, you know, I don't want to come across like that guy. But um... <laughs> the Goonies is a great movie, though. I don't want like, no, Go- I, I would not, I would never shit on the Goonies. Perfectly but... enjoyable. And I love Goonies. Yeah. I love all the kids in the Goonies and I love Goonies fans. So, you know, that's great. But 
Yeah, you know, look, you know, ultimately what 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 happened with the Goonies is they were they were the ones that stepped up in the neighborhood for, you know, a seemingly impossible task. And it was kind of twofold. But really what they did is they saved the neighborhood from a developer. Right. Right. (laughs) Right. From fucking Dracula. So, you know, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, we're not, you know, weighing anything here, but uh there's similarities and there's differences and uh, Goonies fans can be Monster Squad fans and vice versa. Um, That's cool if that was the first comment that was thrown up here. <laughs> Here's a question from somebody. This one's it's uh, totally different, but uh, somebody said uh, when you were making Fathers and Sons, were you expecting that to be the next big thing? Uh, who was that? Who just asked that question? Uh, that's Thomas Combs. We know Tommy pretty well. Yeah. Uh, Tommy's a good listener. Tommy, thank you. Uh, that could have been and should have been a great show. Uh, two reasons why that show didn't continue past its uh, initial five or six episode mid-season replacement uh, arc there. Um, one, I think it was a, uh, it might've been a little ahead of its time, but I think it would have worked if it had its chance. Uh, you know, it was about, you know, four boys and their relationship with their fathers. I don't think we had seen that. Um, besides, you know, since my three sons, you know, maybe it was a, <laughs> yeah, that's well, definitely, a a, and then maybe the Brady bunch, but this is really specific about young boys, which again, we went, we ran the gamut of that ensemble cast. You had the, you know, short nerdy kid, you had the chunky kid, uh, you had the cool kid, which I was, and you had your minority kid, Hakeem, um, uh, Hakeem, who's part of this, uh, you know, amazing R and B group called the boys. Uh, if, if you remember their singles, they're awesome. Um, but you know, at that time, this is also led into kind of monster squad. Um, you know, I, I, I played the cool kid with the awesome clothes and the great hair and a lot of hair product and, um, uh, you know, being, you know, these four boys and their fathers, uh, I think like Hakeem's dad was a cop. Um, uh, Ian's dad, um, uh, was a doctor. And he was the, you know, the, the, the kind of uh, small nerdy kid, uh, Jason late who played, um, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm forgetting the characters names, but I remember the real kids names. Uh, his dad was Merlin Olson, who was coming off of little house on the Prairie and yep. father Murphy. And of course was an NFL player, hall of fame, uh, hall of fame, NFL, NFL player. player. Thank you. And you know, he was the, he was the bigger kid. And then, uh, my character was, like I said, the cool kid with uh, awesome clothes and great hair, great <laughs> hair. <laughs> Um, and my dad was Ricky Nelson, who was returning to television for the first time in 40 years or 35, (laughs) whatever it was since Ozzy and Harriet. And, you know, he is an Americana icon, not only of television icon, but music icon. And he's coming back to television. This was a big deal. And the relationship between, um, I believe my character's name was Sean. Uh, on fathers and sons and his dad was his parents were the ones that were divorced and his dad was sort of a skirt chaser and kind of like uh, you know a, a, a lady hound there and he was always absent and even in the in the pilot episode it's all of the the kids are getting together at the one kid's beach house and they all gonna you know fa- have a fathers and sons weekend and my dad is driving me there. And as we're getting gas, he meets a 
gal at the gas station and he ends up going with her and dropping me off and saying, you'll be just fine. Hang out with your friends. He leaves you in the Himalayas. <laughs> yeah, he leaves me in the Himalayas with flim flam. <laughs> with flim flam. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so then, you know, but, you know, my character just, that's just water off his back because that's all he's known. I think it's a great storyline. I think it's a great storyline with all these other characters. So that's the pilot. And the pilot goes and the show gets picked up for like five episodes mid-season replacement because it's all back in regular network days. In between yeah. shooting the pilot and airing the pilot and the show getting picked up, Ricky Nelson dies in a plane crash. Right. And there goes one of your big hitters and one of your big storylines in the show because you don't have one of the biggest TV names of all time you know, Vermazi right. and Harriet, uh, you know, on the show as an adult playing this absent father to this, you know, younger kid. And I think that, that, that kind of bruised the show, although they definitely wove it into the script that it's called fathers and sons and my character, my dad's never there. So I'm always just on the phone with them and he's always disappointing me. So they actually brought the mother in. <laughs> and so on fathers and sons, I had a mom. And, you know, but I think that was also part of the bit that was ahead of its time. Because how great would a show called Fathers and Sons and one of the, his father's not there, but because he's so absent and such a, just a dick that, uh, you know, he, this kid has to grow up with his mother. That would have been a fantastic storyline. And I, uh, you know, I think, my, you know, Susan Walden was my mother on the show. She was fantastic, just gorgeous, you know, gorgeous actor. And uh, actually did another show with her years later. But um, it, it just didn't work. I think is the Ricky Nelson thing. And then I think the show itself was ahead of the time and networks were like, meh, let's, let's move on. Um, and that was unfortunate because that was a really cool show that could have been, that could have been pretty bitching. Could be because you could have grown up with these kids. Right. You know, the storylines right, sure. don't get stale. You know, you go from junior high into high school and go on. What was that, like 80, 88? No, no, that was 80, uh, 80, 80 85, 86. Because oh, that was leading right into before. Monster Squad. Um, because of well, that to lighten, character. To lighten the mood up a little bit, we tried to get Nelson on, you know, the, the son. I know the twins, yeah. And uh, yeah, they they blew us off, and their agent said, "Nah, they're not interested." <laughs> so somebody posted a picture of Nelson earlier, and I told that story, and the guy was like, "Well, you should tag this post and get him back on." I was like, "Yeah, it's water." <laughs> like I said, water your back. Man crush, did you tell? Well, you probably could convince him if you told them that you could not live without their love and affection. Oh wow, that's <laughs> uh, all. Wow, I mean, it, um, it's not for everybody. It's not for everybody. Let me let me move on with some of these other ones. I want to try to to get these ones in. So Stacy Lanning, and this is not a question, she said, but uh, the quote "Wolfman got nards" is the way my daughter introduced herself to her seventh grade teacher. Love it. So that, that's pretty awesome. Uh, all right, let's see. Uh, any ideas or plans for a sequel? This is from Jeremy Johnston. Uh, that's like a that sounds like a movie character name. That's a badass name. Um, <laughs> Jeremy M. Johnson. Oh no, that ruins it. Um, <laughs> the um, <laughs> I'm kidding, Jeremy. Um, look, a, 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 a sequel is always cool if it's done. And and in this regard, I think it has to be the right people doing it. I think it has to be the right story. I think a story uh, has to have uh, the right tones and touches um, and uh, truthfulness to the original story, if it's going to be a sequel to our 87 story, uh, I think it has to have certain elements in it. I think it has to be uh, also a, a passing of the torch type story. Cause then it can, you know, continue with, you know, the, the, 
the kind of the fun with it, right? right? Um, since we're just talking sequel, we're not talking about anything else. Um, I, I, I think it's uh, one of the things now, you know, who knows? Um, it's always been a everything with Monster Squad. You know, everybody was asking, you know, why isn't there merch? It's more famous now. So I'm going to be making millions of dollars on merch. And I'm like, look, it's, it's a rights issue. Um, the rights to this movie has always been in question. Like who owns it? Who doesn't own it? Do you own it? Or, you know, it's, it's always that. Uh, right. When I think of Monster Squad rights. I think of that Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man, you know, <laughs> me. and uh, you know, what's interesting is um, I don't know. I think it's this year or beginning of next year, 2021, that there may be some answers uh, on that. Uh, I don't have enough info to actually talk about it. Be- it's not like I'm hiding anything. I just, there's a thing that, that something may break loose on that. Uh, there was a time where when Fred and Shane were doing the predator, the latest predator, um, ironic mm-hmm. full circle um, with new line. And they asked if they had a sequel script, wanted to monster squad because they green light it tomorrow. And uh, that was at the same time where Paramount had the rights, but they were working with Michael Bay to remake it, not do a sequel, yeah. but to remake it. And um, then they went over there and said, you know, we're looking at doing a sequel. And I think Michael Bay said, great, let's do it. And everybody said, but no, not with you. Um, and which I, you know, I don't know. I mean, look, everybody Everyone can, blows up. Everybody it's gets explosions. It's like we got explosions and great camera work and it's fast paced. Except and, of a, well, instead of a Wolfman blowing up, it's going to be the whole fucking building. It, that's right it's yeah and wolfman standing and like it's just shia labeouf um which would be crazy um there's so many options though with the age of you guys now where you, obviously you guys could be parents to a new generation of a monster squad who learn from your lineage or whatever or like find your old shit and you know there's so much that can happen there's so much and like how many how many, what is that? Every hundred years? Yeah. I forget now what it is. It's every yeah, hundred in, years that happens. In the lore, it's so every hundred years that the, you know, the, the, you know, the balance is, 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 uh, or the evil and good is balanced and you have a chance to, uh, you know, to, to change that. Um, so in another 67 years, we'll get a sequel. Well, you know, there's always, you got, you know, a thing called creative license and cool storytelling where you can always break into that hundred years and find ways. Oh, am I saying that there's already a story written like that? No. Ooh. Um, ooh. <laughs> That would be awesome, though. I think a lot of people would be excited. Actually, I think I I heard um I heard a little scoop, a little spoiler that it's going to be a Monster Squad versus Furbies. It, it is, <laughs> and you know, Lindo like opens up and just all these fucking Furbies fly out, and uh, it's great. It's funny you were answering that question very serious, and I was reading the next question. This one, this is from a guy. His name is John Kula. We call him Classic Cola. Uh, so his question, obviously not. He said, ask him if he's accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as his savior. Thanks in advance. And he follows that question up with, and also ask him if he produces cream, which is what started to make me laugh. You don't have to answer either one of those. I figured I would just read them because. Read them and give them the do that. I'll, I'll, I will abstain for fear of in, incriminating myself on both right. questions. Uh Here's another question. Another one from Jeremy is a follow-up. Actually, he says, uh, "Were there any movies that you auditioned for that you didn't get that you wanted?" All of them. <laughs> yes. Um, there's, there's should, I, should, should I start the list? Um, <laughs> shit. Um, Et. Um, we got the commercial. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, and, and killed the billion-dollar company, right? Yeah, I got you know I got blamed for that. Um, 
all I got out of it was a 2600 and an awesome dirt bike, um, <laughs> which was a great story. Um, but I, I think, you know, you go back, you know, when you're of that age, you read for just about everything and you, right. you, you either get very close or you don't, you know, it's, and, and the ones that you get very close to coming down, I think one that sticks out uh, with me is uh, a Dead Poet Society and yeah. Stand By Me. I screen tested for the Teddy Duchamp role and I remember it well. And um, th there's a reason I didn't get it because uh, Feldman is fantastic in that role and uh, he's Teddy Duchamp. You should have went full board and cut your ear off. That would, you know, that would have been a great audition thing. Uh, I didn't think about that, that at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Look thanks what thanks I a did. lot, man, crush. God, you know. <laughs> he totally could have had it. Maybe nothing else. Uh, yeah, I think I would say, I would say, yeah, uh, the, the two that stick out the most are uh, uh, Dead Poet Society um, and uh, uh, Stand By Me. All right. Last question. I'll, I'll get you out of here. Do you have any plans to do another documentary after this one? Because this, this was really well, good. Well, thanks. Uh, sure. Uh, from the wild thing. What do you got? Um, uh, you know, interestingly enough, I never would consider myself a, a I don't necessarily consider myself a documentarian. Uh, I, 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 you know, I, I, right. I produced and directed a, a film that's a documentary. Yes. Uh, I've always loved documentaries. Um, I, I, I always told myself I would never do something like that because knowing myself, it would never get finished. It would never be bright. It would never be good enough. Uh, we can always get one more. And, you know, we fought with that with this a little bit, but I was very fortunate enough to, you know, hook up with the, you know, Henry and, 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 and the production team at Pilgrim Studios. Um, there is actually something that if I was going to make a documentary, what would it be? Um, and this is aside from things that people have like asked me to like, would you be interested in doing? Um, and which I won't, you know, I'm not going to, you know, mention those particulars, but there's one that, you know, is a very interesting story about, um, oh, crap. I just forgot her name, but in, uh, the, the thirties, forties and fifties, uh, the lady that ran the Tennessee State House for Children, which was the state orphanage, um, unbeknownst to most people that either dropped their kids off or kids got put in there, uh, she was selling kids for decades. And she had the the local you know sheriff and the judges all on kind of the payroll or either you know favors. Uh, but she trafficked kids all over the country for 30 years. And uh, uh, Georgia Tan, that's her name, Georgia Tan. And interestingly enough, there was a weird uh, Hollywood tie-in with uh, her trafficking kids to people in LA in the Hollywood area. And there was a, a guy, um, God, I'm, I'm tired tonight, I'm, I'm forgetting his name. Um, <laughs> I'll think of it again, but he was a, sort of a B actor. Um, you know, came over from Nashville because he was sort of like a, a campy, plunky, chunky, you know, country Western singer in the in the 40s. And he was sort of this conduit because he was from the area and knew the network and, um, you know, people that wanted kids uh, either in Hollywood that couldn't have kids, uh, you know, biologically or couldn't have kids because their studio contract or something, you know, forbade them to having kids, but they needed kids for the PR you know, whatever it was. Right. Uh, I think right. when you peel the onion, there's so many stories there, but you know, it's an absolutely true story. And the reason that I'm interested in that story is my dad and his sister were two of the kids sold by this woman. Wow. And shipped out from wow. uh, Tennessee to uh, California. Jeez. Heavy. 
that's way to yeah. bring and down the episode, man. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. well, but we won't end on that. Go another one. But uh, that would be a very interesting <laughs> documentary uh, to go back in, in time and, um, and, you know, not to put a downer on it, but if I had thought about it, you know, my dad, uh, my dad died in uh, 2014. And while we were hanging out with him and, you know, the last, you know, you know, I ended up being uh, a hospice caretaker for three months, uh, which is something I, I don't recommend uh, un unless you really want to do something like that. Um, uh, but I, there wasn't any other, I wasn't going to not do that. And um, if I had been in producer mode or in creative mode, I would have put my dad on camera and, you know, just ask him, you know, just tell, you know, tell the stories back in those days. Cause he would tell the stories, but I wasn't thinking about recording them. I was just spending my, you know, the last weeks with my dad and um, had I done that, cause I thought it could have been a cool, uh, you know, kind of remembrance thing, not just for him, but then you go track down and, you know, go find the, the, the kids, you know, cause you can track them down now. Cause there's actually right. like a, yeah. like a social group. It's like the, the, the kids and actually the descendants of the kids, they of you know, that were affected by this Georgia tan lady and her network of selling and trafficking kids. Um, uh, they get together. Like there's, there's a, some, some, some gal from Texas wrote a book about it. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I thought to go get, cause they're all getting older now. They're all, I mean, my dad died when he was 77 and uh, you know, most of these kids are, you know, getting to the end of their run and we can't get them on camera. So if I was going to do it, I, I needed to start a while ago. Um, but it, anyway, it's still a, an interesting right. tie in. And it also has a sort of a, you know, say what you will, a creepy Hollywood connection. That is a wild story. Did she get caught or did she die? Uh, no, I believe she got arrested somewhere in the 50s and she died while she was awaiting Damn. trial or something. She had cancer or something. <laughs> for dying. Good for her. I, I don't think she died. I don't, I don't think, I don't think that punishment. I don't think her uh, 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 punishment was, uh, was good enough. I don't know. That's, <laughs> I don't think the that's some crazy. All right. Say something funny or good before you leave. That's <laughs> <laughs> not a complete downer. Cause that wait, say something funny I or mean... good, which means I haven't said anything good or funny no, 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 all not, night. I'm Thanks man. Saying that. Yeah. That's just like that story sounds fantastic. Like it sounds really riveting. But it's a down. That's a downer. Story. You, it's a total. It's a total downer. A downer. Man crush. Can I ask one question? It's a lighthearted question. Maybe that's a good way to yeah. lighthearted the episode. No more shitty like downer questions, Trevor. Like it's got. I be heard a, a rumor. <laughs> okay, the guy who picked gods and monsters. I don't know. Gotcha. About the, yeah, you did. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. But it's that was funny. Thank Man you. crush said funny. That no, was funny. We, we, so we were, we're funny. Good. Okay, is it true? <laughs> I heard a rumor that Jaleel White and Dustin Diamond were cut out of Monster Squad. Is that true? Uh, Dust, uh, Jaleel White, I have no idea. Um, but Dustin Diamond, yes. He was in the you know opening, opening sequence of present day when we're in the principal's office and we're walking down, you know, doing uh, Mr. Metzger yeah. and uh, Mrs. Cathead <laughs> stuff. Uh, in that kind of hallway scene, uh, I, I think it's in the hallway. Like a kid runs up and goes, "Hey, Sean, I'll trade you." Da, 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 da. And it's like we're trading cards, and it's like a little quick thing. Oh, okay. And like I pull out a handful of like I don't know, either either trading cards or D and D cards or garbage field kids or whatever. And uh, we trade cards, and then he runs off, and that was Dustin Diamond. Yeah, I'm still hoping to see that or the Liam Neeson footage if that ever was shot. 
he wasn't shot. He was there on set apparently, but he was actually never shot. Well, so that was uh, easy, that was an easy paycheck. You go on set and you do nothing. What was he supposed to be? Well, he originally auditioned for Dracula and was very good and would would have been awesome. Um, but Duncan Regeer came in and nailed it. But they remembered, you know, this guy, uh, Liam Neeson, who was this Irish actor who had been in a movie named Crawl like the year or two before, uh, which is one of my all-time favorite fantasy movies. But in the scene where we go into the old house to get the amulet, uh, that was a much bigger scene and multi-layered. And you, we go in and it's me and Eugene and the dog and, uh, and Horace and where they're hunting for the amulet. And this is, you know, the, the Shadowbrook Road house. And I don't remember in the script, I got to look at a, like the script in a box, but um, whether he was like a, a, a realtor or like Van Helsing's grandson or something and said, oh, come on in, you know, maybe you guys can help me. I'm here, you know, trying to, you know, do something or whatever. Can you help me? And let's go this way. And what this is, is this was the scene that ends up being the payoff to scary German guys. I do know about monsters. Uh, if uh, you thought I was a vampire, but I wouldn't have a reflection. Yeah. And it ends with the Holocaust tattoo and reference. Uh, but later on, five minutes, 10 minutes in the movie, we're in this house and he's leading us down into the bowels of this house. And we walk past this big mirror and Sean, my character, sees everybody but him. And it, it, is, it was like a, a floating face or something like a like a bad like a mask. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we realize we're in trouble. And I, you know, it's like if I believe it's like we got to get it, let's run. But we're trapped in the catacombs of this house. And it ends up being like this multi-level because every we we encounter a monster on every level of this house and try to run out. And it ends up being like an episode of Scooby-Doo, uh, which I always thought would have been really cool. And. <laughs> Because of production time, budget, um, timing, or whatever, they had the actor on the set to do that initial scene, and it either got rewritten or cut as we were going, and then they mushed that whole thing, um, you know, in the house for the week that we're shooting that into like you know one level, and we see all the monsters, and then we go through the trap door, and then we get out. Um, it, it was a much longer, cooler scene, and I always liked it because it's Sean's character that you know realizes it and figures it out. And that was one other example of the knowledge of these kids of you know how to deal with monsters in their neighborhood. Plug your stuff before you go. I I feel bad keeping you on so long. Sometimes we get people that are we love to talk to, and they're on for so long, and at the end. Oh yeah, no, I don't. Oh, I, cool. I I'm this was fun. So this was fun. Um, plug my stuff. Well, you know, um, I'm in the ET Atari commercial, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's, it's everybody's favorite. I was in a show that only meant five episodes called Fathers and Sons. Um, go go look at it. Um, uh, ever seen MathNet on you know PBS? One of my favorite things ever. Um, no, but the real stuff. Uh, you know, look, it's all the social media these days. You know, the whiz bangs and the ball bearings and the kids. Uh, Oh my God, I'm old, but, uh, follow, you know, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Twitter is at Andre Gower and Instagram is at Andre Gower official. Um, and, uh, please follow the squad doc, uh, which is what Wolfman's got Nard's kind of social, uh, title is, um, because it's shorter <laughs> and it's a tough social handle to say Wolfman's got Nard's, but uh, you can go to squaddoc.com, check out, you know, media reviews, articles, uh, where it's playing, um, you know, your VOD platforms that you can choose it from links to order it from Amazon, I believe. And, um, or, you know, at, at the squad doc on Instagram and Twitter. And 
you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, we kind of started with Fangoria uh, during the release week and something that I'm going to continue uh, doing with the fans is I want you to send in your uh, hashtag squad story and, you know, just, you know, give, you know, 20 seconds, 30 seconds of, you know, your either first viewing of Monster Squad or what it means to you. And, you know, I just want to just want to see that on Instagram or on Twitter. And uh, then we can connect that way. And it's it's like you're a part of the doc, uh, you know, in the in, in the bonus features. Well, and, I just gave you mine. So, so kind of wait. You, yes, we just got Trevor. So that, that's archived here. So that's awesome. So, again, be a Trevor and, uh, you know, be like that. Uh, it's an honor to but, have but, my know, balls busted by you, Andre. Thank you. Do where did, did I or was it just a, like, early? It know, was just earlier. I hold grudges. Don't just worry early. about it. Oh, OK. <laughs> Um, I, yeah, no, I, I have to be, I have to be uh, careful with stuff like that because I like to have fun and, uh, you know, don't take it the wrong way. Oh no. Um, because I, I certainly don't mean any malice in any of that. Oh no, it was an honor. I feel feel comfortable. I feel comfortable with you guys so we can shoot the shit and make fun of each other. It was, it was truly an honor to be, to, to do this podcast with you, man. It really is. Oh, well, you know, thanks for having me. I think it was fun. I, I, you know, the dueling decades thing is, uh, is certainly a unique angle. I think it's fun. You guys do a ton of research. That's uh, I can imagine contestants coming on and not watching the stuff or no <laughs> thing. Uh, you know, I, that would that would drive me bonkers. But uh, hopefully, I was a fair judge. But anyway, uh, you know, let you guys go. Uh, we'll hit up. We'll do it again, and uh, and we'll talk about stupid stuff uh, that matters to no one but us. You know, for another couple so much hours. fun. I this was a blast. Thanks man. again, this guys. Was a blast. You guys have a great night. Awesome. And I will be talking to you. Thanks, guys. I appreciate guys. it. Have a good night. You too. All right, duelers. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to end this episode right here. But don't worry. If you've missed an episode, you can always head back to DuelingDecades.com where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, everywhere podcasts are available. But in the meantime, while you're on the interwebs, head on over to Facebook.com forward slash Dueling Decades where you can join our private group and share some of your very own retro memories. Until next time, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Infirmary Media.